Today's message is going to be on forgiveness, and I have a little quest for the youth. Are there any youthish people here? Okay, there's a couple over there. Great. Um, I've got a question for you. It's called, I'm calling it the youth discussion question. I have a feeling like the way I wrote this and formatted it is not going to appear cool. All right, so just work with me. Um, I don't know if I ever was cool, and I'm definitely not now. So just don't judge by appearances. But I've got a question here. It's about helping a friend who needs to forgive. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a week to think this over. This message will give you some ideas about what to do to help your friend. And if you bring this back next week and drop it in the offering box at the front there, or you can contact me, you can email it to me here, um, I'm going to review what you, what you respond and then... Uh, Lord willing, hook you up with like a gift card or something like that if it's a really good one. So this is a competition just to get your interests. I can probably help you get something deep fried. So this is for you. So Taylor, do you want to help me hand this out to anybody who wants it? If you're a youthish person, we'll be inclusive and you want to be a part of this. It's pretty self-explanatory on there. Plus you've got my email. And I encourage you to pay attention. That will help you out. All right, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 6. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a long teaching that Jesus gave us about how to live as a Christian, how to think and live as a Christian. And what we're doing is I'm calling this series Hand-Me-Down Child Care because I'm aiming at people who work with younger people, children, nieces, nephews, uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Anybody here have great-great-great-grandchildren? Probably not. I mean, people are living longer these days, but they're also having kids later, so it kind of works against you for that. Um, Or if you work with youth, or you work in a school area, or anything like that, I'm wanting to help equip us for caring for younger people. And how I'm doing that is I want us first to enrich our relationship with God the Father. And then from that relationship with God the Father, just turn around and hand that off to the young people in our life. It's hand-me-down child care. God cares for his children. We're going to learn how to receive that care in a deeper way and then hand it over to other people in our life, which really is the Christian life. Love people from the love you get. Forgive people from the forgiveness you get. Be generous with people from the generosity God has given to you. And on and on and on. We're just God's FedEx delivery people, really. Amen? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Thank you very much. I'm going to read this out, and you are welcome to read this passage of Scripture with us. And the Scripture I'm going to be speaking on today is emboldened here, or is bolded. And you're welcome to join me as I read this out. And then I'll pray. Three, two, one. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Father, I'm so glad that you're here. God, one of the best things about you, and it's a long list, but one of the best things about you is that you have sent your Holy Spirit into the world, which is your own spirit. So you are here. You live inside of your children, and you make your presence known when your children gather together or when we seek you in prayer in a thousand different ways. God, you want to be here. And this is the truth of this morning, God. You want to be here with us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give me everything I need to be your servant and to be a good brother and a good pastor this morning. I I want to fellowship with you during this service. And I pray you give everybody here what they need, Lord, for great freedom and great breakthrough, Lord. We're going to be talking about serious things, eternal things. And, Father, everybody who needs some freedom, I pray that you'd break through. God, I just pray... Um, by the authority given in me, that I bind up every spirit of lying and darkness in Jesus' name. You must be silent, and your power here is broken as the Holy Spirit is God in our midst through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for his glory and his honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, if you've got a lot of time on your hands after this message and a full tank of gas, you can go for a drive. And if you just head north and kind of use the perimeter to deek around Winnipeg and kind of just keep heading north in the center of the province, eventually you will drive by a town called Toulon. Has anybody ever been to Toulon before? Well, apparently people who visit Toulon go to the first service because there's only a couple of you here. Is it a big town? No. Okay, so Toulon is famous for nothing. But, not unlike like Steinbeck, though we, we did make it in the news last year for one reason and another. But about a month ago, a lady from Toulon was in Las Vegas, and she attended a, a country music, outdoor country music concert there. And during that event, she was shot by a gunman who had broken out a window from a hotel and was raining down bullets from that hotel room into the crowd who eventually killed about 59 people and wounded hundreds and uh, I'm sure people were wounded as well just as they fled in the night from um, just the madness of it. Um, she survived. I don't know if she's back in Canada yet but uh, the, last I, the last news report I saw of her, she, she survived and she is getting better. Um, but she was... Uh, little old no one from little old nowhere Manitoba. Uh, and it is nowhere Manitoba. You can drive into North Dakota, just south of the border, and say you're from Manitoba, and they will have no idea where you're from. It's like, you say Canada. Oh, right. It's like, uh, it only took me an hour and a half to get here from the border. Nowhere, nowhere, but in the news for being shot. And that that event where that gunman was um shooting into the crowd um, was, I think, America's most recent mass shooting, largest mass shooting. And it was really unique, in my opinion, as I was reading it, because it seemed like the perpetrator did everything possible to conceal his motivation. And unless somebody knows something I don't, nobody knows why he did it. Usually when there's some kind of mass killing, and there are many of them, including ones that don't involve guns, within the first two weeks or so, they can piece together some kind of a motive. But in this case, it's, it's proved almost impossible unless there's some kind of dark secret that they're concealing from the media, though I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, and please don't let that be the only thing you remember from the message. 
when these kinds of events happen, people, human beings, have, in general, a very strong reaction. And it usually goes something like this. How could someone do that? This is so disturbing. This needs to never happen again. Those are usually the kinds of responses to these kinds of things. How could, how could someone do this? This is so deeply disturbing. This needs to stop. This needs to never happen again. And that kind of response, which people usually have, is a justice response. We want justice. And because it, was, it, was, it has proved impossible to um, find a motive... It has been really, it's been impossible to assign blame for what happened. And the gunman killed himself, so he's beyond justice in, in the human world. I'm very certain that uh, God it had began administering his justice a few seconds after his death. Um, but in the human world, there's no interview, there's no courtroom, there's no trial, there's no prosecution, there's no jail time. Um, and so this cultural mass lust for justice just went haywire and ended up being the craziest blame fest I've seen in the media in a long time, where just everything and everyone was getting blamed for it because we didn't know why it happened and because there's this like desire to condemn it. So sometimes it was blamed on too many guns, sometimes not enough guns. Sometimes it was just he was white or because there were Republicans in the audience of the, uh, the concert or because he was a man like every guy does that or wants to. And it was because of the president. It was because of not the president. You know, it was just, it was just a, a out-of-control blame fest because of this desire for justice and um, not knowing what to attack in the name of justice. Now, this kind of response, this wanting to see justice done, is entirely human because we're made in the image of God. The rest of God's creation does not do this. So, for instance, I don't mean to make light, but if you had an ant farm, they don't really do these nowadays, but you remember they used to do these things called ant farms where you'd have two pieces of glass held together by plastic and you'd pour dirt in there and then put some ants in there and they would start making their tunnels. And one of the most organized creatures in the world, ant colonies. They've got a queen, which is probably why they work so smoothly. They've got a queen and the drones just kind of sit around doing nothing all day, which is probably why it works so smoothly in there again. But... Um, <laughs> The, the, you've got this totally organized can't, ant colony, but what you will never see in an ant colony, some guy you know, pointing out his ant colony and saying, this is where they lay the eggs, and this is where they store them, and this is the jail cell. This is where they keep the bad ants, where the other police ants go and gather evidence so that they can build their case. This is the prosecutor ant, you can tell because he gets paid the most. And then they do the little trial, and then when this ant is guilty, they haul this ant to the top of the ant colony, and they bite his head off, and then they go and bury his body. Except for the head, they put that on a little stake so that all the other ants can learn not to be a bad ant like this ant. That never happens in the rest of the world. It's just us. Because we alone are made in God's image, and God is a God of justice, and we, his little image bearers, are also gods, not gods of justice. We also desire to see justice in God's world. However, we're very fallen, and so it's all bent and twisted and broken. But it's important to know that when God sees sin, and that's what happened, he also experiences the feelings of how could anyone do that? This is deeply disturbing, and I am going to stop this. But God's method for stopping things 
um, was a lot different than we would have expected. And it involved sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be a sinless man, to live a sinless, perfect life under the law, uh, fully obedient to the Father in every kind of way, and then to wrongfully die on a cross. Because even though God is a God of justice, and perfectly so, He is also a God of mercy and forgiveness, and perfectly so. And one of the things that you'll see in North America as we become more and more secular, we are thoroughly secular, and by that I just mean that um, we've all kind of decided that it's, it's okay to live without God and you can live a good life without God and everyone can live an important life without God. We just don't need Him. That's what I mean by a secular world. We just we don't need God anywhere. But it, we'll all agree. We all agree. Nobody, nobody needs to... And you, you can believe in God. Just, just shut up about it. You can do that at home and on Sunday mornings as long as you don't say anything really bad on Sunday mornings. That's kind of our agreement. Um, because we are rejecting the God of mercy and forgiveness, you will see less and less capacity to think about forgiveness in our culture. You just won't see it anymore. It will only be who do we blame, how do we condemn them, and how much money are they going to give us to make us go away. That's all, that's all there will be. So, I'm here to talk to you today about how to be God's child, the child of a God who is the God of justice and the God of forgiveness at the same time. Amen? Now let me just stop and talk about kids for a second. I want to intersperse this in the message instead of waiting till the end. Um, children come out of the womb with a very strong sense of justice. If you ever worked with kids, you've heard them shout with tears projectiling out of their eyes, that's not fair. Anybody? Anybody? And if you doubt that this is true, take three children to Dairy Queen, buy two of them those little itty-bitty vanilla soft serves, and buy one of them a gigantic blizzard with score bits inside of it, and just see what happens. They'll be like, what? How come he? That's not fair. (laughs) Over ice cream. Over ice cream. And so children come out with this desire for justice, and you never have to train it, right? It's not like for Christmas, moms and dads are going, okay, so if it looks like Johnny got a bigger Lego set than you, I want you to just smash his Lego set when he's not looking and then run out of the house yelling, you don't love me, okay? You don't have to train them to do this. This is part of a broken, sinful nature to want to see justice in the world, to think everything's not fair, but to do it in a way that's completely selfish, (laughs) And you know this if you work with kids or young people. But part of you being the older person in the room is going to be to help bring about justice. You're sometimes going to have to be the judge at a courtroom case. So when the kids are fighting, if they're fighting, the tendency can be to just do whatever shuts them up the fastest. Anybody else? That's the temptation. What shuts them up the fastest? It's like, oh, they're fighting, and you pull out your, your ice cream hose, and you just hose them down, and just once they're fully coated and soft serve, then it's usually a problem solved. But, or you can just get louder than them or just separate them. But very often, it's going to be our job to hold court, which means deciding who's the plaintiff, deciding who's the defendant, and letting each one be able to say their piece and then have a cross-examination. And it takes time, but this is part of actually just doing life together. There is a reason we have a legal system. We need it. We need time for people to say, this is my side of the story. Another person to say, this is my side of the story, to weigh evidence and to decide who needs to get a 
acquitted, who might need to get condemned, and what the consequences are going to be, and who needs to apologize to whom. This is part of our, our life, older people, when you deal with kids. And we do need to do a good job. I remember reading this story about a dad. I don't remember who it is, so I'm not going to pretend to. But he was saying he's got a few boys, and one day, it was in the winter, one of the sons came in, and he had snow all down his face and going into his neck, and he was crying, and he came inside, and he said, Johnny threw a snowball in my face. And Johnny's the older brother. And so the parent, whoever it was, mom or dad, said, called Johnny, come on in. What happened here? And Johnny's like, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I, he did it to, he did it. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Of course, parents are just like, yeah, to the right. But they didn't discipline because they wanted the Johnny to confess, to admit it, right? To walk in the light. And so they, they were working on him every once in a while. So Johnny, what happened out there? I didn't do it. And so they're at dinner table and dad's praying for the meal. Dear Jesus, thank you for this food and help each one of us to tell the truth and to own it if we did something wrong. Amen. Well, a couple seconds later, the the one who got the snow on their face starts crying. I did it. They're like, what are you talking about? I rubbed snow in my face and then I blamed it on Johnny. Which is like, that happens? That, that was my response when I read that story. It's like, that can happen? Because I would have totally been the guy being like, nobody rubs snow on their face and then comes and blames it on the older brother. And then there's a part of me that says, I wish I had done that when I was a kid. <laughs> my parents would have believed me every time because my older brother was the kind of brother who throw snow on my face. So anyhow, missed opportunities. <laughs> and I wasn't saved back then. So anyhow, um, just kidding, just kidding. Please don't do anything crazy because I t- said that. Anyhow, as, as an older person with kids, justice is important. Taking people through the process of hearing the stories and walking people through it and getting people to the place where they're telling the truth and whoever needs to apologize can get it and whoever needs a correction can get it. Amen? Okay, well, let's get back to my message here. What I've been saying about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is teaching his disciples not just to pray, but how to have God as their dad. Okay, it is not hard to get people to repeat words out loud, my father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is not hard to do that, but one of Jesus' most difficult missions is to convince sinners that God loves them and he is actually their dad. And so they saw Jesus praying to his heavenly father and they said, you need to teach us how to do that because we don't pray like that. And Jesus knows that the main issue is that they are not convinced that God has received them as dear children. And so he takes them through this prayer in order to teach them how to relate to God as their dad. And so he had to teach them to say, call him father. Because most of the time you're not going to want to because you're not going to feel like you're worthy to. But I'm training you when you talk to God, call him father. He said, invite him into your life. Your kingdom come. Don't assume he's just up in heaven watching you, ignoring you. He wants to be involved. Call on him to invade your life. He is a generous dad. Don't assume you're all on your own and whatever you're making at your work is all that you'll ever have. He is generous. Every day wake up and say, give me what I need to be your child and to serve you in this life. And he loves, loves, loves to give bread to his children. And now he's bringing them to this place of them dealing with the ongoing guilt and sin in their life. 
in God's wisdom over the world, when somebody gets saved, when they come to Jesus, when they get a new nature, when they're born again, one of the things that does not happen is that God does not take away from you your ability to sin. Amen? He just doesn't. He doesn't just wave a magic wand over your brain, cut out large chunks of it, and then close it back up and say, hey, now you can never sin again. We aren't slaves to sin as Christians, but we aren't totally free from the temptation to sin. And you and I both know we have a hard time going even a few minutes, sometimes a few hours, sometimes a few days without sinning. Is it just me or is that you too? So as God's children, we need to learn how to relate to the holy God of justice as people who sin regularly. True? And so what Jesus wants to say about his dad is this. Every day, my dad, your dad, is ready to forgive you. So come. My father sent me to die for your sins and to be raised from the grave to be your Lord and your shepherd and to give you the Holy Spirit so that there is nothing, nothing, nothing in the universe that will keep you from being able to come and have a sweet, intimate relationship with my dad, who is your dad. That's what this line means. And this is the truth behind that. That call to come and get forgiven every day is this. The Father wants an intimate, sweet relationship with you. Doesn't want you just to work for Him. Doesn't want you just to try to clean up your act. He wants a beautiful sweet relationship with each one of his sons and daughters. And so he has made it so that there's nothing to stop us from coming to him. Every day you can be forgiven and have the sweetness of a relationship with God renewed. Because if you're like me, you know when you find out you've done something wrong or you're somebody precious in your life lets you know you've done something wrong, um, what happens when we feel guilty? We either run or we attack. And part of what's happening is you, you feel like, okay, I've got this relationship. I've got this relationship. It's precious to me. This relationship with this person is precious to me. And now that I've done something, I'm afraid either they're going to reject me or they'll never forgive me so that I'll never be able to come back and have this sweet peace again that's the fear right when you when a relationship is damaged through sin or doing something wrong the fear is i cannot have the sweetness the safety of their relationship back they might never forgive me i might be rejected and so i will either run because i'm afraid of being rejected or i will attack before they can say things that will hurt me more amen that's human nature that's kind of how it works And what Jesus sees in his disciples is that their nature is to pull back from God out of feeling guilty, to assume that he's going to reject them. 
And so they'll either get angry at God. God, why are you messing up my life? Why won't you help me? Blah. Or they're just going to disappear. I quit on this Christian stuff. I'm out of here. And instead he's saying, the truth is, is that God knows you will sin again. And the cross of Jesus and the blood of Jesus is enough to forgive you and to restore the sweetness of relationship with the Father. He wants an intimate, sweet, peaceful, holy, enjoyable, love-filled, joy-filled, patient, relaxation-filled relationship with each one of his sons and daughters. And so he says, go to dad and say, forgive me again. And he will. And I'm stunned about this because the human heart does not turn on a dime when, when it's offended. Amen. Somebody hurts you and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And you're sitting there going, I don't know. Because you're a jerk. A jerk and a scumbag. Don't forget an idiot. So I'll think about it. And chemically, you know, your adrenaline's running and you've gone all limbic and you're like, I can't even think straight. All I'm thinking right now is the last Godzilla movie I saw and just trashing your town, like you're Tokyo and I'm just going to radiation breath all over you. You better be Mothra or you're dead. Right? Like we are, we don't, it doesn't, even when we want to, it can be so hard to forgive. But God, in the moment, God, I confess I did this. Would you forgive? He's like, yeah, absolutely. And, he's, and then he's, and now believe me, because I want to have sweet relationship with you now. And you're going to be all waiting for me to still give you the ugly eyebrows. No, I want to have a sweet relationship with you the instant you ask for it. And that's a way that God is so unlike any of us. Sometimes we're like, oh, I forgive, no problem. When it's easy for us to forgive, it's usually because we haven't felt any of the pain of being wronged, amen? Sometimes we say, I forgive you, but what we're really saying is, I didn't even notice, you know? It's like, oh, I wasn't going to use that dog anyways. I don't mind that you ran it over. You know what I mean? Like, that's what we're like. But when we're really hurt, when we're really hurt, oh my goodness, those emotions take over. It's so hard. But God... Through Christ, he has done everything so that the forgiveness is quick and complete. Now, sometimes there's like a discipleship process. Sometimes he leads you through that. Sometimes there's consequences that can't be undone. And that's okay, because if God is your dad and he is with you, it doesn't really matter as much as that. That's the important thing. God, are you with me in this? I'm with you in this. Okay, you can get me through it. I can go through it. Amen? So if you hear me, just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip going over the prodigal son story, but please know that I did a flying leap into Greg's arms earlier today to demonstrate what God looks like to people who are looking for forgiveness. He runs to embrace those who are on their way to get forgiven by their dad. Flying, yeah, right. Afterwards, afterwards. I need to get my Tylenol in for... I'm an old man. So, if you don't take anything away from this message besides the fact that God is way better than you know when it comes to forgiveness, and that he, he absolutely wants a sweet relationship with you. Like, this is the staggering thing. He's done everything so that you can have just... Just sit down and be loved. 
and you remember, oh, I did it. God, can you forgive me? He's like, yep. And just sit down and be loved. He's done everything. So that's who God is in Christ. And we access that by faith in Jesus Christ. We say, Jesus, be my Lord. Forgive my sins. He says, I'm your Lord. I forgive your sins. Plus you get my dad. Plus you get the Holy Spirit. Plus you get eternal life. Plus you get the new heavens and the new earth. Plus you get a church family. Plus, 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 plus spiritual gifts. Plus, 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 plus. You're drinking out of the fire hose. <laughs> we come for a glass of water. He throws you in the ocean. <laughs> Amen? Is it just me? I came to Jesus when I was about 18 years old, and I came just because I was so tired of having evil desires. Have I told this story before? I probably told it once, but if you haven't heard it, this is your day. Um, I just, God helped me see that I wanted evil things. There was this girl that I was in first year university, never met Jackie Belfort yet, so my, my idea of what beautiful looked like was wrong. Um, so there was, it's been corrected, so thank you, darling. I just, ah, the sun rose. I'd been living in darkness before then, but um, there was this girl down the hallway who I kind of liked, and she had a boyfriend, and I would just lie in bed uh, envisioning that that boyfriend would like beat her up so that I could bust in there and karate chop him to the neck and be the hero. And, and the Holy Spirit before I knew him, but people were praying for me, came to me and said, you're wishing evil on her so that you can do evil to him. You're not a good person. And I was like, this is true. I have a problem. And so I came to Jesus because C.S. Lewis promised me that if I would come to Jesus, he would give me a new me. He would take out my evil and replace it with himself. And I was like, that's what I want. I want Jesus to be my heart. And on top of the process of being changed from the inside out, he gave me eternal life and a new dad and the Holy Spirit and the promise of provision and church family and spiritual gifts. All I'm trying to say is you come for a little, he gives you a ton. He, he, his delight is to do you good forever and ever. That's what, I think it's in Jeremiah, it could be Ezekiel. He says, I will delight myself in doing good to you. What's God's idea of a good time? Doing good to you. Now this is really sweet. And in Luke, I think Jesus just stops there. But in Matthew, Jesus adds a few more details to this whole forgiveness business that makes this topic much more serious than we have gotten so far. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he goes on to explain it a little bit more thoroughly. In verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your, your Father forgive you your trespasses. So this is serious stuff. Amen? It sounds very serious. The idea of not being forgiven by God, that is not a peaceful thought. To have the God of justice in heaven thinking, I'm not going to forgive you, that's not somewhere I want to go or live. You know, some people get a bit theological about this and they go, okay, so what does not forgiving mean? Does that mean like that I'm just going to have like a bad life or does that mean I'm not going to go to heaven? And they start trying to parse out exactly what the cost of not forgiveness is. And sometimes the heart behind that is, um, I kind of still want to be in control of my life and I kind of want to be able to decide if I get to forgive people or not forgive people. And so I'm going to find out what the cost of unforgiveness is because I might want to pay that cost so I can hold on to my unforgiveness. So I'm saying that's not the right way to think about this. The right, when you hear Jesus say, if you do this, you won't be forgiven, the right response is that I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to do it. That's not an option for me. So what Jesus is doing there is he's taking a life of unforgiveness off the table for Christians. If you're a Christian, you do not have the right to not forgive anybody. That's what he wants us to hold on to the pulpit, shake a little bit. Okay, it's off the table. Not forgiving is not an option. Amen? So let's talk about this a little bit. What's going on here? And I'm going to do this section of the message not to frighten people, though if you are frightened into forgiveness, I'm sure that's not the worst thing that will happen to you in your day. I'm not saying this to browbeat anybody or guilt trip anybody, but maybe if we go through this, this might explain some stuff that's been happening in your life. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 to explain further this whole idea of forgiving, being forgiven or not forgiven. Uh, Peter comes up to him and says, how many times do I need to forgive someone? Like seven times, you know, thinking he's being generous. And so here's Peter. He's got his little fisherman's notebook in his pocket. Smells like fish. And, um, and he's keeping little tabs on people. He's like, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? Because James is up to three. And, uh, and uh, Bar- Bartholomew, I don't never like that guy. So he's like up to 16. And uh, Jesus, you've even got like four. Four things that I don't want to forgive you about here. Because you keep, like, I talk to you and you're, like, calling me Satan. So I just keep my tabs here. And um, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? Seven times? It's a lot. And Jesus says to him, you know, seven times seven or 77 times seven. Just... And then he tells this story about a king who comes to settle accounts. And I'm just going to rephrase it for you. He says there's this great king and he goes to one of his servants and the servant owes him, like, $10 billion. And he says, time to pay me back. And the servant says, I can't pay you back, but just give me time and I will pay you back. So this is where the servant's coming from. I'll fix myself. You ever been like that? God, I will, I, just give me some time to fix myself and I will pay you back so you don't have to forgive me. I'll do it all on my own. I can do this. Like, where are you going to find $10 billion after you're already in debt for $10 billion? You had $10 billion, you lost $10 billion. Where are you going to find? Who's going to trust you with $10 billion? Like, this is a crazy... How do you lose $10 billion? And the, the parable goes that the, the king forgave him the debt. Okay? okay, can't pay me back. Asking for mercy. Just forget about it. I'll absorb the damage to great personal cost. And then that servant goes to another servant who owed him like a hundred denarii or a couple thousand bucks and starts strangling him. Pay me what you owe. And the guy says the same thing. Just give me some time. I'll pay you back. And the funny thing is he might actually have been able to do it. If you gave him a few months, he could have maybe sold his shoes or done one of those crazy internet pyramid schemes, which would be more trouble, but get the money and then pay him back or something like that. Um, but he says no. And he throws him in jail. Um, which is what they would do back then. Nowadays, you like declare bankruptcy, and it's really weird, but back then, it's like if you owe people and couldn't pay them, then you'd go to prison. And the king gets really upset when he hears about it. And he goes to that servant, and he says, I forgave you so much, and you couldn't have mercy on one of your other co-servants. He says, the debt's back on. I'm sending you to jail, and you're not going to get out until you pay me the last penny, which would be never. So this is a story of forgiveness, and it's a story to wake us up so that we don't think we can play around with unforgiveness and get away with it. 
That's what it is. It's a story to wake us up and say to ourselves, I am not going to fool around with unforgiveness. It's, it's, I'm pushing it out of my life. And so there's a few things to note here. Number one, God is the God of justice and on all sin, and he believes he has the right to tell people what to do when they've been sinned against. So somebody wrongs you, they steal your bike. God, God believes he has the right to tell people what to do when your bike's been stolen. So David, King David, you might remember him. You remember he um, took Bathsheba into his bedroom, even though Bathsheba was married to Uriah, and then he had Uriah killed to cover up the fact that he'd impregnated Bathsheba. Is that bad? Yeah, that's bad. And for David to do it, he was like the king and a prophet. For him to do it, it was about as bad as it could get. Nathan shows up and convicts him of his sin and, and, uh, and says there's going to be some really serious consequences, including the fact that the baby's going to die. But he says to David, your sins are forgiven. David never asked for it. Um, and if you were one of Bathsheba's family members, and I think Ahithophel was, if you know who he was, you might be pretty chapped that God would forgive David. But David in Psalm 51, talking to God, says, against you and you only have I sinned which is crazy. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah. And David's talking to God saying, it's you that I've sinned against and only you? That's weird. But what I think David is acknowledging is this truth. When somebody sins, before they've sinned against somebody else, they've sinned against God. God receives that sin first. So if somebody steals your bike, God says, you stole a bike in my world first. And then you stole that person's bike. That's how it works. Whenever somebody sins, it's against God first, and then it's against the person. And so God thinks he's in charge of, of how things should work out, whether it's justice or mercy. And on top of that, when God has forgiven the debts of somebody, like me, he believes he has a right to tell me what to do with the debts that somebody owes me. Does that make sense? That's what the king did. I forgive you your debts. And then when that guy didn't forgive somebody else's debt, he didn't just go, well, then I kind of regret forgiving that guy. Oh, well. He said, no, when I forgave you, I bought you. And I especially bought your forgiveness and unforgiveness. So I'm, I'm pretty chapped about what you're doing here. Amen? So this is just part of the reality. When Christ has forgiven you, your forgiveness and unforgiveness becomes part of his kingdom that he rules over, which is good news, and I'll get to that in a second. And what he tells us to do, I love, I really appreciate, it's a funny thing to say about scripture, I appreciate that God did that. This is how I would have done it, and so I'm glad God did it the way I would have done it. That's not what I'm talking about here. I appreciate the language that scripture has here. When, when Jesus is talking about debts, he doesn't say sins, and elsewhere he'll talk about transgressions, which is great, which is like transgressing a law, so breaking a law. And a sin is breaking, breaking God's law. What's a good definition for a sin? It's breaking God's law. But he talks about debts here, because when people wrong each other, there is kind of like a debt created, right? You hurt me. You, you took from me. So somebody steals your bike, somebody steals your bike, and it's like, that bike was worth a thousand bucks. That guy owes me a thousand bucks. Plus emotional damage, 20 million. You know what I'm talking about? Plus punitive damage, another five million. So the bike was worth a thousand. My emotions are worth 
let's make it 50 million. Let's just get real. Like, these are my emotions. So my emotions were at 50 million bucks. You know how robbed I felt when I was robbed? I felt robbed. So 50 million bucks plus just to hurt you, 5 million bucks. That's what punitive damages mean. When you read it in the news, it's the court making somebody pay money just so that it hurts. And uh, so it really works talking about debts. And if you've been wronged or you've been hurt, you've been abandoned, you've been misused, you know what it's like to live life thinking, that person owed me more. That person should have treated me different. That person hurt me. That person owes me. And you're walking around with like $100 million of relational debt, sin debt, hurt debt that you wish people owed you. And you remember because you want them to pay you back, right? If I ever get my hands on that guy, I'm going to take 20 million bucks of emotional damage out of that guy. I'm going to hurt that person $5 million or whatever, you know? And you do the things where you shut off relationship or you curse them in your heart or you trash them behind their back or you steal their bike back. You're like, you just steal my bike, I'm going to steal your bike. I'm going to throw into a trash compactor. There's going to be nothing left of tin can when I'm done with that thing. I do that too well. Have you ever seen that in your heart, having a list of debts that people owe you? This is what God is saying through this, this teaching us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive others their debts. He's saying, take that $20 million debt, turn it over, say, I give this to God, signed Robert Balfour, and I hand it to the Lord. And, and God, in payment, I want you to give me more Jesus. That's the exchange. God... Kids left their bikes on the driveway, $80 million. Okay, maybe lack of perspective there, but I'm upset. Turn over the debt, right? I give this to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give it to Jesus and say, God, in return, would you give me more of you? This is the exchange, right? I forgive so that you forgive. I give up my complaint so I get more of God. And that's often the thing. I give up my anger so I can have a sweet relationship with you which is a great deal. This is the best deal ever. And this is the promise. If you will give your, the debts people owe you to God, you'll forgive them by giving it to God. You can say to God and give me more of Jesus. Give me a deeper relationship with Jesus. Help me experience the love of Jesus. Take this place where I've had a hard heart, make it soft so I can experience Jesus in this part of my life. That's the exchange. And it is a great exchange. It's totally worth it. But things get a bit more serious as well. Because in the story with the the king, he says to the unmerciful servant, hand him over to the jailers until he pays me back. But in the Greek, that word isn't jailers, it's actually torturers. So I think what was going on in, in the Greco-Roman world, if you ran a jail, every once in a while it was your job to make people hurt really bad whether it's the 40 lashes minus one or whatever it is, sometimes part of the people's punishment or if you're trying to get money out of them was to turn the screws and brand the irons and whatever. So the parable goes, the king says, hand him over to the torturers. I want my money. I want my money now. You're not just going to sit there enjoying some time off. It's going to be unpleasant. You better find somebody who's willing to pay your debts. Which is kind of a scary part of the, the parable and a bit of an unexpected turn of events. You're talking to the king of forgiveness, and all of a sudden he's talking about having people imprisoned by torturers. Yikes. And so as I thought about this, there's a principle when you're reading the Bible, if you find a part of the Bible that doesn't seem perfectly clear, you try to find another part of the scripture that is more clear to help to have the 
clear part help interpret the less clear part. And so I went to Ephesians, and I remembered that Paul talks about forgiveness in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. Let me just find it here. And so I'm going to read some portions to you from chapter 4 of Ephesians, and I want you just to listen to this. We're going to read it the right direction, and then I'm going to read it backwards to you, and I think this will make sense. Paul says this, chapter 4, starting in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay? You can, you can be angry, don't sin in it, and the kind of sinning I'm thinking about is just holding on to your anger and stewing in it, and don't do this because it gives the devil an opportunity in your life. And then going down a little bit farther, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom... You were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so sometimes to understand Scripture, it helps to actually read it backwards. And this is what I mean. God in Christ forgave you. He's your dad. He's forgiven you. And so, be kind to one another, forgiving one another. Makes sense so far? Sounds like what the whole message has been so far. And then it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. This is the opposite of forgiveness. This is the other option. It's either kindness and forgiveness or bitterness, anger, and wrath. Why do we need to do this? Because if you don't, you will grieve the Holy Spirit who seals you for redemption. So when the Holy Spirit sees someone holding on to their anger, they're holding on to unforgiveness, they're living in bitterness, he says, this really hurts me. This is not something I'm a part of. I'm going to have to pull back a little bit from this. And then, as we continue reading it backwards, he says, don't be angry and don't hold on to your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So as I read this, backwards, I see that forgiveness is the way because God loves us and forgives us. And if we reject that and choose bitterness and wrath, we grieve the Holy Spirit and make room for the devil into our life. And when the devil comes into our life, it is not to do us good. He comes to torture us, to torment us, to hurt us, to make us go crazy, to tempt us to sin, to ruin our lives. So this is what I think Jesus is talking about. The way of, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of forgiveness. Holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness says, I don't want you to be my dad. I would like the other one to be my dad. And when he comes, he comes to hurt us. And so what I'm saying this morning is with these truths, I mean, and I just, I just want to invite you. Do you think if you look at your life that maybe the devil has been having a run at you? He's had a lot of influence and a lot of power to, to convince you to do self-destructive things. And if that's true, then is it possible that part of the way he gets in is because you're, you're angry and hurt and haven't brought that to God for freedom yet? That, that has explained some of my life. I've been Mr. Bitter, and I have done totally stupid things out of it. So, let's bring this to the kids for a second. I have told you this wonderful truth, just telling you what Jesus has said, that the Father wants to maintain a beautiful, intimate relationship with you. And I am not lying. I would die for this truth. Just like Jesus did. 
he wants to maintain a sweet, guilt-free, shame-free, fear-free relationship with you. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. And that's why he says, every day come and ask for forgiveness so that you know everything's okay with God. And so as the big people in the room, we should, like our dad, seek to be responsible for maintaining the sweetness of the relationships with the younger people in our lives. God took the initiative. He did what we could never do. He didn't sit around waiting. He, 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 he sought and he made the way himself. And like God, we should help our little ones put away their offenses and be just listening for it. Does it sound like they're bitter at something? Does it sound like they're nursing a hurt? And don't just say, oh, maybe it'll sort itself out. It might never. And you don't want the devil having access into your little people's lives. So you talk to them. Hey, do you think you might, are you still angry? Are you still hurt? Should we talk about this? We need to bring this to God. And, uh, you know, we've had time even in our family where the kids have come up from bad dreams or whatever and said, well, did you go to bed angry? Well, yeah. Well, then this makes sense. Yeah, you had a bad dream. Because before you went to bed, you said that the devil was allowed to come in and do that. And so it's part of our lifestyle a little bit at our home. All right. So thank you for your patience. And I think this is important. So why don't we just, I want to finish up on some important stuff. Because we live in a really messy world. Does anybody else know we live in a really messy world where you can hear a message like, I should forgive, and then you could be like, I'm going to forgive, and you march out there, and then the next thing that happens, somebody drives over your foot in the parking lot, and you're like, (laughs) forget this forgiveness stuff. Smash! I'm going to break your window. You know, you just, all the best intentions in the world, and then your emotions kick in, and then real life shows up, and then you're dealing with really horrible people sometime, and it's just like, "I, I know I'm supposed to forgive you, but... The only thing missing between that person and Satan is the red underpants. Like, you know what I'm talking about? And so we need, we need to be wise in this as well. And so one of the great passages of being wise when it comes to forgiveness and taking serious, forgiveness seriously is in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17, where Paul, after preaching the gospel to them for 11 chapters, starts to talk really nitty-gritty in life. And he says to them, um, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think this passage answers three really common questions when it comes to forgiveness or reasons why we don't want to forgive quickly. Number one, we can feel like if we're going to forgive, what we're doing is we're saying, it was okay what happened to me. Amen? If I forgive, then I'm saying what happened was okay. I'm okay with it. And, um, and that's not true. You don't ever have to say it was okay to forgive. Which is why Paul says, when it comes to dealing with people who've forgiven you, what you're not doing is saying it was no big deal. What you are doing is this situation deserves vengeance. It deserves revenge. It deserves justice. But I take that debt and I'm not going to avenge myself. I'm going to give it to God. And he's going to give me Jesus and if he wants to get vengeance, he can do that. That's what we're doing. 
Does that make sense? Because there are things that happen to us where it is just so not okay, not in a million years, and it is God himself who's saying what happened to you was sin. And whoever did it to you deserves to go to hell. But what he's also saying is that it's not your job to put them there. And when we're um, holding bitterness against somebody, what we're really doing is saying, I'm God and I'm going to put you in, in hell. I'm going to put you in a place of bitterness and anger. I'm going to hate you in my heart and you're in my brain, you're in hell. And God says, um, only I am capable of actually doing justice. You can't do it. it. You just cannot do it without being destroyed by it. The only person who is worthy to administrate justice over the earth is Jesus Christ who died for sin and rose from the grave and is able to read the hearts of human beings. And so that's his job. It's not our job. So we give the, the wrong that was done us to Jesus. We say, give me Jesus instead. Give me peace instead. Give me the love of God instead. And what you want to do with it, you're welcome to. The other question that can come is, if I forgive this person, do I have to let them back in my life? Or do I let them have free reign in my life? So I don't want to forgive this person because it sounds like I'm giving them the key to my front door. Amen? Have you ever been there? That's one of the big stumbling blocks to forgiveness. If I forgive them, then I'm giving them the front key to my front door. And what Paul says in response to that is he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. So you forgive, you have a free heart, you be free in your heart, but just know it's not always going to be possible to have a peaceable relationship. Just make sure that they're the issue, not you. Amen? It actually isn't going to be possible for you to have relationships with everybody or peaceful relationships or free relationships. Just don't let you be the problem. So here's an illustration that doesn't have anything to do with people. A few months ago, uh, my wife was up in the morning and she noticed that there was this gigantic dog running around our yard. Do you remember this, sweetie? There's this dog running around and it was really obviously lost because it just wouldn't leave our yard and we'd never seen it before. And Jackie really wanted to do something to help. And I really wanted to go to work. That was the difference there. And this dog had very obviously spent most of the morning, if not the night, um, playing around in bog. Because it was wet and stinky. And it was like really wet. It wasn't like just walking through the grass. Its toes were a bit wet. It was wet all the way up and all the way down. Just a mess. But it was kind of friendly. Unfortunately, it was friendly because it was that kind of friendly where the dog likes to just lean up to you and like rub itself on you like, you look like a nice person, buy me some food and just like rubbing its bogness all over my pastor pants. (laughs) Which are not that water resistant. Anyhow, So Jackie's doing her best to, she puts the dog on Facebook to see if anybody's looking for a lost dog, and there were no bites there, so she eventually finds somebody who is willing to come and pick up this dog. But this is the thing. We decided that this dog could come into our garage, and that's it. We wanted to help, but because of the mess it was, it could come into the garage, not into the house. Amen? That was just reading the situation. The dog did try to get in a few times. It did break in. Okay, so after I left, Jackie gave it the, sorry, not the boot. There was no violence, no animals were harmed in the making of this illustration. Um, She got it back out. But we were just, the reality was, this is just a dog and this dog is a mess. It, It is not okay to come into the house where it can do damage. Amen? That was the reality of it. If it had had a nice bath and then maybe a little bit of a trim, we could... 
Jackie says never. We're kind of like a five-pound uh, chihuahua family. So, um, but you hear what I'm saying, right? You, you want to help, you make a call of what's safe and doable. If you forgive somebody and you release them to God, what you're not saying is, you have full access into my life. You make a call. You make a wise call so that, if possible, as much as it depends on you, you're at peace with people. Another thing that can happen is people can wonder, if I forgive this person, does that mean that I can't call the cops on them? Which isn't something that everybody has to deal with, but it is a question. If I release these people to God, does that mean that I just let them keep committing crimes? No. So after Paul says, um, don't take vengeance yourself, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, he starts talking about governments, strangely enough. And we can often think, because it's starting a new chapter, that he's changing the subject, but he's not really changing the subject. So he says this, For the rulers are not a terror of good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive their approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we're supposed to hold these verses together, because they're just a few verses apart. Don't take vengeance yourself. Give it to the Lord. By the way, the governing authorities are a servant of God for vengeance. They don't carry the sword for nothing. So in, in these few verses, he's saying, you forgive them, give them to God, and call the cops. Because they, they pack pepper spray for situations just like this. God has put governing authorities to do what you're not called to do. You're, it's not your job to put people in prison, but it is somebody's job. Amen? So we're just talking about real life here. You can forgive somebody, and from a free place in your heart, call 911 and invite the boys in blue to, to help. Does that help? Yeah. This is real life. But the, this, this is the key. We say to ourselves, God, before you, I don't want to ever have any unforgiveness or bitterness in my heart. Deal with me, set me free, and help me to live wisely in this world. I want a fresh sweet relationship with my father and nothing in between. Amen? And that's what God wants with you. God, I thank you. I, th I know we're talking about real life here. I know we're talking. I'm talking to hurting people. Everybody in this room has been sinned against. Everybody has the devil in their ear saying, you have a right to hold on to your unforgiveness. I pray that that voice would just be cut off. That every single person here would walk in a life of real forgiveness. God, there is nothing you can do to show the world that you want to forgive. You have killed your son. And if God would slay his son to forgive me while I'm his enemy, he'll deal with whatever happens after that as well. So, friend, let me just tell you, whatever your reasons are for holding back from God, they are not good reasons. And they're not God's reasons. He's calling you today. If you're finding it emotionally impossible to forgive, Tell that to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to be free. I can't see the way forward. Um, let me end this prayer to tell a story. Thank you for being ready. There was a lady named Corrie Ten Boom, and she was a real lady. And she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, which I read. But then she became a bit more real to me because somebody I, I read who's alive was telling about the time they invited Corrie Ten Boom to come and speak at this Jewish center. 
and she was just preaching like crazy. So it's like she was a real person. And uh, she lived, she was Dutch. Thank you, Tim, for finding out that detail. And she lived through the Second World War, and she and her dad and her sister rescued Jews during the Second World War. They had a secret room made in their house, and there were Jews living in their house. And when the Nazis stormed their house to find the Jews, they went and hid in the hiding place in their house, and they were rescued. They never found them so that they were saved. And they, they finally escaped, and I think they lived. So this is her testimony. She is someone who rescued Jews from the Nazis. Okay, is this somebody you want to listen to? After the war was over, she found herself preaching the gospel in Germany to the people who sent their soldiers to Germany and she had to rescue Jews from. And she was preaching at one meeting. This is how she ends her book. And she's preaching at this one meeting and a guy comes up to her afterwards just to say to her, isn't it amazing that God could forgive me too? And he stands there and holds out his hand to shake her hand to thank her for preaching the gospel. And she recognizes him. They got arrested. And in jail, her dad died. And after being in jail, they were taken to a concentration camp where her sister also died. But when they were brought to the concentration camp, I think it was this, if my memory serves me, you can read the book and correct me. I would love it if you would do that. There was this process where they brought in all the women and they stripped them totally naked in front of the soldiers so that they could take their clothes and give them away to the war effort. And so, and she recognized that one of the soldiers standing outside of this mass shower that all these women had to go into was this guy. And she could just remember his face because the soldiers were just sneering at all these old ladies, these either Jews or people who helped the Jews and just hated them. And here he is standing in front of her saying, isn't it great that God could forgive me too? And she just said all of the emotions of the fear of hiding these Jews and the day when the place got stormed and I was arrested and beaten up and they took me to the prison and hearing that my dad died because he was in prison and then seeing my sister wither away and die in this concentration camp, it all came back to me. She said, I froze totally froze like wouldn't you this this face of nazi germany with the hand held out she said i totally froze i couldn't do it i couldn't couldn't lift up my hand and then she said then i started remembering jesus and how jesus actually did come to die for people just like this people just like me people just like this guy and she just she just said oh help me jesus and she managed to get her hand up. And she says that when my hand touched this guy's hand, something totally extraordinary happened. It was like my whole body was filled with electricity. She said, what, what is learning from doing this? She said that the power to forgive doesn't even come from us. The command to forgive comes to us. But the power to forgive comes from Jesus, just like everything else. It wasn't about her. It wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. Jesus saving sinners. And for us, the word Nazi means unforgivable, unforgivably evil. But there are going to be some ex-Nazis in heaven because of Corey Ten Boom preaching to them. This is crazy. But just remember, when you see a movie about Nazi Germany, some of those guys got saved because God's kingdom is way bigger than Hollywood's version of human history. But what I'm trying to tell you is that in this moment, if you're just saying to yourself that infernal lie, I cannot forgive, those are the devil's words. Jesus can do it. 
look to him and say, I don't feel I can forgive, but I want you. Would you help me? God will today, tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, take you to the place where you can be free. He's a good God. So God, would you do it in our midst? And amen.